Hello and welcome to the Bulletin of Spanish Studies podcast. I'm Gemma McKenna and I will be your host. In this series, we uncover up-to-the-minute research in Hispanism throughout Spain, Portugal and Latin America by speaking to academics from around the world. In this episode, we will be talking to Rodrigo López Rodríguez of the University of Aberdeen. Rodrigo, fresh from his PhD on fictional avant-garde in Latin American literature at the University of Manchester, hopped on a train north to Scotland to take up the role of teaching fellow in Spanish and Latin American studies at Aberdeen. Congratulations! Today, we'll be talking about an article Rodrigo wrote for the Bulletin of Spanish Studies entitled Essays in Transatlantic Transition. The Argentine journal Sitio, 1981 to 1987, and Alberto Cardin's Como Si Nada, 1981, which is open access on our website. And it's worth listening, given that this article was selected by our panel of experts as the most original, accomplished and important study of 2022, published across both of our journals. So well done on that as well, Rodrigo. A busy year for you. If you can tell us a bit about your background and how you've how you've got here, where where you are now. Yes, sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for inviting me for the podcast. It's an honor to be here to, and also to receive the, the prize as well, right? Yeah. Um, so, well, I come from Argentina, did my undergrad studies at the University of Buenos Aires in literature. Mm-hmm. And, well, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship from the University of Manchester to pursue my PhD in the UK. And so, yeah, thanks to Ignacio Aguiló and James Scorer, my supervisors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I submitted my thesis in September. And literally a week later, I was starting my current job in the in Aberdeen, the University of Aberdeen. Um, so, so, yeah, in that sense, this year has been quite busy mm-hmm. between finishing the thesis, publishing a few articles, and, well, now getting the the teaching position here in Scotland, but I'm quite happy about it. It's, it's been a great year in, yeah. in terms of work. And I guess it's exactly the right outcome. You want to get your PhD and get started working. Get So that's brilliant. Well done, you. I'm sure many will be envious of you. So tell us then, this grew out of your PhD project, which you, you've only just finished. So tell us a bit about that project. Um, yes, well, my PhD is titled Fictional Avant-Garde in Latin American Literature, and it analyzes fictional renderings of groups of avant-garde artists in Latin American fiction. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's about novels who, that portray uh, different artists, different artistic projects as well. So. I use fiction as a way of rethinking the links between experimental art and revolutionary politics, which were so important in Latin America Mm -hmm. during the 20th century, especially after the Cuban Revolution. So I chose a few novels by authors like Julio Cortázar, Roque Dalton, Roberto Bolaño, um, to analyze how they present a fictional depiction of avant-garde artists and the way in which those artistic projects relate to certain political uh, scenarios. Mm -hmm. 
in that sense, my conclusion is that this fictional avant-garde portrays the creation of community and not so much the creation of art okay. as the way in which experimental uh, and avant-garde art contribute to social change. Okay, yeah, it sounds fascinating. So then I guess from from that, from looking at Cortázar and Bolaño and, and so on, where how did you get from there to this article, which focuses more on essays uh, and has a transatlantic focus and really has a big, you have a big interest in psychoanalysis as well. Did that stand, how did that, where did that come from? Indeed, the article and my PhD are quite different mm-hmm. um, because they were originally two different projects. When I was applying to PhD uh, scholarships, I had one proposal for Argentina, one proposal for the UK. I am not sure why <laughs> uh, I did that, <laughs> but at the time I thought it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I started my PhD here, then the pandemic began, lockdown, and I had the great idea of taking my Argentinian uh, PhD proposal from the drawer and start doing research about it. So I had the time, I had a few months, I was in Manchester alone in lockdown and well, I started researching the this topic of psychoanalysis and um, the Spanish transition mm-hmm. and eventually I I could write a couple of articles from it. Mm-hmm. So so, well, yeah, that's the process. Well, I'm very impressed that you were one of these people who was productive in lockdown because I, I think I just barely survived. But I'm always glad to hear of other people being very successful with their time. Um, I guess the, you mentioned there that you had a couple of articles that kind of grew out of this. Um, it seems to me that you've been quite prolific in the past couple of years, uh, especially for at this stage in your career. Do you have any words of advice for those looking to publish early in their career? Are there any sort of challenges that you would flag or, or what would you say to those people? Um, well, let's assume I'm, I'm in position. I'm in a position to give advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, well, I, I think there is something um, emotional in, in writing articles. I, I think it's important to be self-confident in, I mean, the ideal moment to write the article you are imagining and getting all the feedback you want and then submitting it to the perfect journal, well, that time never comes, mm-hmm. right? So there's there's one point in which you got to trust yourself and submit. Yeah. And, well, don't be afraid of rejections and it's part of the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but, well, then there is also a practical side, right, which worked quite well for me which is to do the research as if I were already writing the article. Okay. So mm-hmm. whenever I'm reading, doing research, I always keep a notebook next to me and I draft sentences, paragraphs, ideas. So um, I, I think it's the best way to never get lost by reading too much, like trying thinking a lot and putting things on paper mm-hmm. it gives so you imagining concrete imagining starting that point. I'm writing mm-hmm. exactly right yeah. so I always undertake research as if I as if I'm already writing mm, yeah. that's a, a good tip I like that one 
So just to, to get back to our article, so our listeners are aware, your article won our James Whiston Memorial Prize, which is an annual award of £1,000 donated since 2019 by Taylor and Francis Group. They're our publishers. This article compares the Argentine journal Sitio, which was published between 1981 and 1987, and Alberto Cardin's book Como Si Nada, which was published in 1981, you argue that both redefine the essay form in the face of the Argentine and Spanish democratic transitions. What is it about the essay format that drew you in? Well, the essay, I think the flexibility of the mm-hmm. form is quite the, the vital aspect of it mm-hmm. for my, my article, and especially in connection to psychoanalysis, because I am studying writers who approach the essay form as if it were a session of self-analysis. Mm-hmm. So the psychoanalytic session as the ideal space to question ourselves, our discourse, our subjective positioning, to interrogate um, our own subjectivity. So the essay form as mirroring a psychoanalytic session because writing it allows the intellectual to interrogate him or herself mm. in the face of social change, a political context. So as a way in which the intellectual questions uh, their own subjective and uh, intellectual positioning uh, in a certain context. Okay, that, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I guess the other thing that you highlight about the essay format that works particularly well is kind of that it worked like as a weapon against the democratic transitions, sort of political cultural normalization, taking aim at a lot of the key figures at the time. If you can tell us a bit about how that worked as well. Yes, indeed. Um, I studied essays that are quite controversial. Mm -hmm. So, um, as I said, by interrogating the figure of the intellectual itself in writing, these writers also take a stance against those who are not the ideal figure of the intellectual they have in mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, choosing who to fight against is part of the process that defines these intellectuals as such. It defines mm-hmm. the kind of the role model they are trying to promote mm-hmm. in a context of intense social change, such as a democratic transition. Okay. And so there were a number of sort of key figures and key institutions that these essays took aim at and who who would you who would you pick out if you were going to pick out some of those? Mhm. Yes. Um that's interesting. In the case of Alberto Cardin, his greatest enemy was Fernando Sabater. Mm-hmm. Um who well, at the time Sabater was the most renowned intellectual of the Spanish left, we could say, in a very broad sense. And then his later intellectual career actually proved that Cardin was maybe right. <laughs> um, but also um, Juan Goitisolo, another very important writer at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, for Cardin, all those intellectuals represented the worst uh, aspect of the Spanish democratic transition, mm-hmm. um, which is basically the logic, what what came to be called the logic of consensus. Okay. Um, 
even when they claimed to oppose consensus. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the twisted way in which Cardin was thinking. His point was that all these writers, because they were so highly promoted by the cultural establishment, by mm -hmm. institutions, by, for example, the newspaper El País, yeah. uh, that whatever they said, even if they claimed to be the most radical thinkers, they ended up being conservative and uh, contributing to the uh, process of consensus, of institutionalization, of, of, of counterculture, um, almost of consolidating a, democracy. Yeah, almost a, a voice for the establishment in a way by the end of it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. They, in the end, they validated the establishment, despite of what they said. Yeah. So yeah, it's a kind of a, a twisted way of thinking, but actually quite compelling to write yeah. an article about. Yeah, an interesting approach. Um, if I just highlight Professor Joe Evans, who's editor-in-chief of the Bulletin of Spanish Visual Studies and chair of the judging panel, she said your Rodrigo's meticulously researched and highly original article was described by our panel as intellectually ambitious and persuasively argued with a refreshingly transnational comparative approach. Were you actively seeking the transatlantic link or how did you come across it? Um, it was part of the research process um, because I was interested in psychoanalysis as a cultural phenomenon and the links between psychoanalysis and literature. And I knew there were Argentine, Argentine intellectuals who were interested in psychoanalysis, who went into exile in Spain in the 1970s. So I figured there had to be something there, something that hadn't been really studied or explored before. So when I started doing my research and reading about these writers, I found that they had contributed to a few Spanish magazines in the 1970s and 80s. So I read those magazines and I, I, I found all these Spanish authors with whom they contributed, like Alberto Cardin, but also other writers, um, Biel Mesquida, for example. So discovering the transatlantic link in that sense was part of the research process and the way I, I found the, the text that I wanted to work with. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting approach. I guess, I mean, you talk about psychoanalysis and indeed it plays a key role in your study. I mean, for some of our listeners, they may not be aware, and I know that my mind was blown when I found out about this in Argentina years ago. Um, can you give us a bit of an insight into Argentina's particular or maybe peculiar relationship with psychoanalysis? How, how would you sort of, just in layman's terms, how, how does Argentina look at this and why is it different? Yes, um... Well, we could safely say Argentina is the most psychoanalytic country in the world. Um, not because we are all mad. I mean, we might well. be. <laughs> we, well, I mean, that's your opinion. <laughs> slightly more than the rest of the world, but not so much. Um, so, yeah, in, in fact, if we look at the numbers, I think Argentina leads the world in in terms of the, the rate of psychoanalysts per uh, inhabitants mm -hmm. so, and, and it's a huge difference like Argentina is like 
I think the number was 200 and something per 100,000 people. Yeah. And in the second place, Finland was uh, 50 something per wow. 100,000. So, wow. um, so yeah, it is quite huge. Mm-hmm. But the important part is that psychoanalysis is a cultural phenomenon beyond mental health. Mm-hmm. So psychoanalysis in Argentina became part of social discourse. Um, it is very common for middle class and upper class uh, people to go to therapy and talk openly, talk about it with their friends, family. Mm-hmm. Like everyone knows the name of the analyst, of your friend. Um, so I guess the question is why or how psychoanalysis becomes a cultural phenomenon in a country like Argentina. And when we start looking back, um, it's actually part of the process of the emergence of the middle class itself, the process of social and cultural modernization that first began in the 1920s after the immigration and urban growth. But the the key period when looking at psychoanalysis, um, especially in Buenos Aires, because it's a very, it's a phenomenon very proper to Buenos Aires, mm-hmm. not so much to the rest of the, the wider country. country. Yeah, indeed. So we have to look at the 1960s. Okay. Uh, the 1960s as the moment in which a new middle class emerges, the middle class as we know it today, so strongly linked to consumer culture. Yeah. Um. So psychoanalysis in that context becomes an object of consumption just like, for example, experimental art. They are very close Mm -hmm. to each other. So we could say objects of knowledgeable consumption that give a certain status to this new middle class that wants to prove it has the cultural capital. Um, And in that context, we, we find these writers and intellectuals who also find something in psychoanalysis which is mostly thanks to the French inspiration. Oh, so they yeah. were inspired by French theory in that sense, what yeah. we could call French theory in the UK. Mm-hmm. So post-structuralism, Roland Barthes, uh, Jacques Lacan, Foucault, yeah. uh, all those big names. Mm-hmm. So in a context in which psychoanalysis was becoming a boom in Argentina, we also have experimental writers, intellectuals, who wanted to renovate the Argentine literary criticism, but also experimental writing, and they found a valuable instrument in psychoanalytic theory. Mm -hmm. And even some of them became psychoanalysts, and they made a living out of psychoanalysis. So they went from writing to uh, becoming professionals in mental health. Interesting. And then in contrast, I suppose you come from Argentina where it's so well accepted and everybody knows about it, talks about it and is very open about it. What about in Spain at that time? Because it was a really different environment, the early 1980s. So how how was it received there? Absolutely different. Um, We have to think that psychoanalysis was highly censored during the dictatorship. So uh, have nearly four decades in which psychoanalysis didn't circulate in the Spanish public sphere. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, 
during the transition, psychoanalysis had a certain appeal. It, it was a new theory, something transgressive, modern, European, which was something that Spanish society was actively seeking mm-hmm. at the time to become European, to become modern, to stop lagging behind. However, in the mental health domain, the reception of psychoanalysis was was not huge, mm-hmm. maybe rel- relatively small, but quite solid as yeah. well, because yeah. the institutions and professionals that were working at the time, they are still working right today. So th- they managed to give a certain continuity to the psychoanalytic practice, but again, not really huge. It wasn't... Uh, not, not every middle-class person in Spain went to therapy in the same way as in Argentina. Quite, it's quite the opposite. However, we do have in Spain, just as in Argentina before, a small group of writers, intellectuals, interested in what psychoanalysis could give them to renovate mm-hmm. literature, to renovate cultural criticism after the dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So in so a sense... In a sense, would you say that those Argentines that came to Spain or were maybe exiled to Spain, that psychoanalysis gave them a sort of cultural capital that they could then exploit? Absolutely. Uh, it was the way in which they could insert themselves in the culture, in the Spanish cultural field. Mm-hmm. Uh, it allowed them to make a living as well. Mm-hmm. They used to teach classes, seminars. Uh, they started some psychoanalytic institutions, so they also provided uh, therapy. Mm. And they met, it allowed them to met to meet a few Spanish writers who were interested in learning about psychoanalysis, who went to their classes and seminars. And this is how this collaboration between magazines and authors that I studied came to be. I see. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And and just as we're talking about that, uh, th- these texts, they came about at a, t- a really turbulent period in history for both Spain and Argentina in the early 1980s. So if you could give us an idea of exactly what was going on in Spain and Argentina at that time, because we know that uh, dictatorship was playing a big part in both places and at different stages. So what would you say? Um, yes, indeed. We do have two countries um, facing similar issues during their democratic transitions, but quite um, at slightly different moments. Mm-hmm. Um, by 1981, the time of in, in the year in which the essay I, I studied was published, we could say that the Spanish public sphere was largely reconstructed, so six years after Franco's death. Mm-hmm. The, the process was quite solid at the mm-hmm. time. Um, so we already have those institutionalized big names that we mentioned before, like Fernando Sabater, Juan Goytisolo, José Luis López Aranguren, Francisco Umbral, all those great, um, th- those big figures mm-hmm. that used to publish so much in those newspapers, like, for example, El País also by 1981 was already quite a significant institution for Mm -hmm. for Spanish culture. However, when we look at Argentina in 1981, we are still under dictatorial rule. But 
intellectuals, writers were already envisioning something different. They were already expecting some change to occur in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. And especially because, well, the dictatorship was facing a huge economic crisis. So uh, something had to change. Eventually, it did after the Falklands, uh, Malvinas War. Um, But at the time, 1981, one year before, intellectuals were already imagining how to reconstruct the public sphere, the cultural Mm -hmm. uh, scene, once the dictatorship ended, or how to contribute to uh, to that change that they wanted to to occur. So there were the first signs of decline in the military dictatorship in Argentina at that stage. Just the hint that it was coming. Indeed. Yeah. 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 N- 1981, the year in which this uh, journal Sitio uh, was started, was the year in which uh, the dictatorship began showing its first symptoms of decline. So I guess my next question is about the Argentine journal Sitio and the environment that it was publishing in. If you can advise us what was happening there. So yeah, it was, um, again, a journal started during a dictatorship. So Mm -hmm. that gives it a few um, quite specific characteristics. And it was founded by a group of people quite marginal in the context, at least in in the context of the dictatorship or even in the Argentine cultural field, more general, but people who had a background in psychoanalysis, who were intellectuals, writers, even even some of them were academics, um, and they had already explored these links between psychoanalytic theory, literary criticism, experimental writing, a few years before, in the late 1970s. So they had already the knowledge about psychoanalytic theory. They had already some, uh, some of them had published already quite a few books about psychoanalysis, but also uh, literary works or literary criticism as well. And to study Sitio, we have to take into account the existence of Punto de Vista, which Mm -hmm. was the most important magazine published in Argentina since uh, the early 80s until 2000. But at the time, Punto de Vista was the most um, relevant cultural magazine to propose cultural change, to propose a new program for intellectuals in the face of a declining dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, Punto de Vista was quite, uh, it is known for introducing cultural studies into Argentina. Mm-hmm. However, Sitio opposes Punto de Vista and champions the specificity of literature of studying and analyzing literature and maybe even high literature. Okay. Their their absolute reference was James Joyce. They for them Joyce was the ultimate expression of uh, literary writing. Mm. And so in that sense yeah. Yeah, no, yes, go sorry. ahead. Go ahead. Um there was one more one more point I wanted to say. 
these writers, they didn't want to compromise. They were against every type of compromise. So not putting literature at the service of a political agenda, be it, for example, consolidating a post-dictatorial cultural scene, but they thought and they defended literature as having a political value by itself. So writing itself as a political act okay. and mm -hmm. not in relation to a broader political intellectual agenda. Yeah, okay. And so then Alberto Cardin, who was over in Spain, you describe him as the forgotten enfant terrible with a vocation for polemics. What else can you tell us about him? Cardin is a fascinating figure. Like, and it's almost unbelievable that he's been barely studied in in the past couple of decades. Um, because he wrote so many and so different works. He wrote fiction, literary criticism. He wrote about psychoanalysis. He wrote essays like this one. Mm -hmm. But he was also an anthropologist. He was a translator. He translated Gilles Deleuze, for example, into Spanish. Um, he published the first book devoted to HIV AIDS ever published in Spain. Wow. So we're talking about quite a, a significant figure. He died in 1992 of, of HIV as well. Oh. A very prolific writer in that sense that published so many books in such a short uh, span, but there is one aspect that brings a certain co coherence to this expansive career, and that is his vocation for polemics. We could say Cardin was at the left of the left and at the right of the right. So in every work he wrote, he tried to provoke um, intellectual controversy so to provoke discussion as the only way in which culture could produce something meaningful. So provoking discussion, provoking debate as the ultimate goal of his cultural project, be it literature, translation, essays, everything I mentioned before. So in that sense, we have an intellectual who is totally opposed to the ideal of consensus that defined the Spanish transition. So the idea of reconciliating Spain after the dictatorship and finding a common ground and forgetting all those differences from the civil war. Cardin, uh, the intellectual standpoint of Cardin was radically opposed to the mainstream discourse in Spanish society at the time. So I suppose we're, we're sort of getting to the part of what Cardin and the editors in Sitio had in common. I guess that's exactly where we are. How would you, how would you describe that? Yes, indeed. Um, well, the first obvious point in common is psychoanalysis. There is an interest in using psychoanalytic theory as a way of moving forward uh, literary writing and literary criticism. And in that sense, we notice a very similar standpoint in both Sitio and Cardin regarding the cultural normalization, institutionalization that necessarily follows a military dictatorship. Mm -hmm. So after censorship, after violence, 
we see intellectuals that need to recompose the cultural field and need to adopt a certain positioning in relation to broader institutions like the media, the state, state cultural policies, I mean. And, well, Sitio Cardin, they do share um, a political positioning, a way of approaching literature and criticism as a way of intervening in that process of cultural normalization in a post-dictatorial context. So, I previously said Cardin had a vocation for polemics and Sitio, they didn't want to compromise literature, so mm -hmm. literary writing as uh, having a certain value by itself. So, in that sense, we see two examples of intellectuals who promoted intellectual debate in a context in which debates were not highly valued. Mm -hmm. So, um, thinking about recomposing the democratic cultural field and public sphere, dialogue, agreement, consensus were much more valued than um, using literature to fight against everyone and everything. Mm -hmm. um, so, in the end, I do notice a very similar positioning, but also the preference for um, using literature in a controversial, polemic way to fight against those who were quickly institutionalized and became the references of official mm -hmm. democratic culture. One of the things that comes up quite a bit, you talk about the ética de las diferencias. How would you explain that in relation to Cardin? Yeah, an ethics, an ethics of differences in, in, in that sense, that's the way I put it in the article, it is absolutely related to this way of approaching culture as a means of provoking discussion. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I do use the word ethics, because it involves Cardin's personality as a whole. So he defined himself as an intellectual by provoking discussion, by debating, by, by opposing um, those um, who represented the post-dictatorial official culture. Yeah. So in that sense, writing in the way Cardin wrote, was totally linked or constitutive of the ethical positioning he adopted as an intellectual in a very specific and intense social context. And we can apply the same, um, the same term to Sitio, because uh, Sitio, by regarding literature above everything else and, no, and not uh, putting it, not putting literary writing at the service of a broader political agenda, they are also valuing differences, provoking discussion through literature and um, approaching literary criticism, but also essay writing um, as a way of advancing uh, those polemics, those controversies. Mm -hmm. um, in the end, ethics and writing as being totally linked to each other in producing 
uh, a role model of the intellectual. Yeah. What should the democratic intellectual look like in the 1980s? Someone who values consensus, someone who tries to provoke discussions. In the end, what they are disputing, what they are fighting against, is the role model of the intellectual, of the figure of the intellectual that came to be institutionalized mm. uh, as the democratic transitions went on. Yeah. So w- would you say then that as democracy kind of moved on, people stopped paying attention to those intellectuals that were engaged in polemics? So somebody like Cardin would have found himself more marginalized and having less of a voice in that space? Absolutely. Um, Cardin especially, he was already a marginal figure in the transition, mm. like, like yeah. since the beginning. Um, but as the 1980s moved forward, um, indeed, for example, um, he wouldn't get published anymore in magazines like El Viejo Topo, um, Ajo Blanco, even El País. He used to publish articles in El País, but well, they quickly uh, took him out of the payroll. Yeah. Um, so indeed, he found himself more and more marginalized as uh, years passed by. But well, the, in the way in which he survived and, and uh, as an intellectual figure was um, limiting himself to his work as a teacher, as a as a, a theorist as well of anthropology in the University of Barcelona. So he stopped publishing those very polemic and and bold essays and articles in, in, in the media or, or even stopped producing uh, literary criticism as such. And he limited himself to the domain of anthropology. Because mm-hmm. the appetite for such essays was was much decreased at that stage, sounds like. Okay. One of the things that you mentioned about Cardin, and you said at the start, he's surprisingly understudied. Um, whenever you came to look at him, did, how did you find out information of him and how did you go about compiling all that information together? Um, well, I I have two sources, I could say. One is a person uh, who is Paul Julian Smith. He's okay. maybe one of the few academics who actually uh, really studied Cardin and and he was the his works were the first example I found to start thinking mm-hmm. my own ideas about Cardin. Um, so his works were quite an important reference uh, yeah. for me. And then I met him and, and and we had a lovely chat about Cardin. So I'm very thankful to Paul as well. Um, and then I did quite a lot of um, archival work. I, I, I went to I went to Oviedo um, at the university there, they have Cardin's archives and personal papers. So I could I could read quite a few letters written by Cardin himself. I could take a look at his notebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, well, I did a lot of secondhand bookstores mm-hmm. uh, shopping. Uh, whenever I found something published by Cardin, I basically buy it. Yeah. Um, 
It sounds like you pretty much have your own archive. Had you build your own archive on Cardin? I, I, I do. I, I do have my own, uh, my, my own archive. Like every, every book he published, I, I managed to find it and, and, and buy them. I also bought quite a few magazines in, in, in which he contributed. Um, so yeah, it's quite um, an interesting quite a challenge. Yeah, 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 it's interesting and a challenge as well because you don't find his magazines and works in every library. It's, yeah. it's not something easy to to find. We are mm -hmm. talking about mar marginal publications which were never reissued again, uh -huh. especially magazines. Those are the the hardest to find. Lurking in people's uh, attics somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm every couple of months. I I, I do a Google search, like on, uh, like on the Argent, Argentine and Spanish versions of eBay. You know? <laughs> See what you can track down. Exactly. If you can tell us what's next for your research, because there's a couple of different strands, and I wonder which direction you're going to pursue next. Um, yes, I'm actually continuing this research on Cardin, the democratic transition, and psychoanalysis. Because so far I mainly focused on essays, and now I want to move on and analyze different forms like fiction, but also the magazines themselves. So I'm exploring these connections uh, between literature, psychoanalysis, and uh, democratic transition in different works, mostly by Cardin, but also I have more examples. Um, uh, like Catalan authors, okay. Biel Mesquida, Kim Monzo. Um, I'm analyzing how they also use psychoanalysis in quite a different way to Cardin, but still uh, sharing a certain positioning in the context of the transition. So, so well, yeah, right now I'm, I'm interested in exploring these connections in, in different okay. uh, and, and still with writing. a link to Latin America or more peninsular in direction? Um, no, I'm keeping the transatlantic approach okay, because yeah. we, are, we are still talking about um, writers who develop this connection with psychoanalysis. Through um, Argentina. Through Argentina and, and those Argentinian exiles that, okay. that arrived in Spain in the 1980s, like Oscar Masota, Germán García, and there are a few more. Okay. Okay, well, we shall keep our eyes out for that. One of the things I enjoyed hearing about uh, when we chatted previously, you told me about your your writing technique and how you really think about how you're going to write. What would you describe that as? Um, I guess the the question would be how to write something you would want to read. So... Mm -hmm. um, I guess in terms of writing style, that's the the key question. The ultimate uh, aim. Absolutely, and and it's quite quite hard to get there, right? Um, and Rodrigo, I think a uh, lot of academics do not consider this whenever they start writing. So it's nice to hear that some people do. Um, well, I mean, if it works for them, I'm I'm not gonna not gonna argue against. Mm -hmm. um, but I do want, I always try to write something that, that I find interesting myself. Um, and style plays a big role mm -hmm. in, in that, I think. And especially when I read academic works, I do prefer those who are highly critical, like those who dare to say something bold, to yeah. oppose someone. Yeah. 
so Cardin made it easy for me in that sense because he was so critical himself and Sitio as well that I could mirror uh, their positioning, the way they were promoting polemics and adopted myself when analyzing democratic transitions. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, so would you say that I know you read lots, but do you read lots across different genres or is it always, are you mainly focused on academic works or do you think it helps reading everything? No, I, I do think it helps um, reading essays. I, I do like to read essays a lot. Mm -hmm. um, the essay is quite a strong genre in the Argentinian intellectual tradition. Okay. Um, and there are a few writers that I admire a lot. Um, who, they were professors, they worked in academia, but okay. they were, they wrote for a different audience. I mean, obviously this was 40 years ago, so the academic environment was totally different. Um, I'm thinking about David Vinyas, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so I do enjoy very much reading those essays who were meant for a wider audience, but still are very, very complex. So how to find the balance between writing something interesting, something that everyone could want to read, um, while at the same time not losing the um, the complexity of your analysis. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not even near David Vinyas. I'm, it's, I, I will never be. <laughs> I, I could live 10 lives and I will never be close to him. Uh, but I do enjoy reading him a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I liked when he said was that, you know, academic writing still has to build suspense. It still has to make the reader eager to continue. And you really have to think about your reader, put put yourself in their shoes when you're writing because what, what is going to make them read on? And sometimes I think people forget ultimately that what you want is for people to read it and get to the end and, and want to find out what happens. Um, indeed, the end. To, I mean, there are obviously techniques for doing that, um, getting the attention of your reader in the introduction, like yeah. bringing a nice story to, to get people into your topic, working on transitions as well from one section to the other. Um, so there's always uh, rhetorical strategies to keep something in your pocket, you know, something yeah. you are uh, building momentum and, and taking your readers by the hand until you reach the point in which where you say uh, that bold, big statement that ideally will shock their minds, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm certainly not an expert, but I do try. I do try well, to I build mean, that suspense. I, think I do it, try to make it interesting. Yeah, I think it's fair to say you've obviously done that pretty well here since you won a prize for it. So congratulations on that front. So, and then I guess what attracted you to the Bulletin of Spanish Studies? Why did you want to publish with us? Um... Actually, I, I started looking for, for a journal once I already had the article written, mm -hmm. and, and I tried to find some place in which it could fit. Mm -hmm. um, and the bulletin, I noticed that the transatlantic approach, it could be welcomed uh, in, in, in that sense. 
um, because, well, I mean, there, there are some other journals much more focused on the Spanish or the Latin American. But in this case, I saw, I, I, I looked at the last issues, and I noticed um, quite a lot of mixture between uh, the, the Spanish and Latin American context. Mm-hmm. And also the interdisciplinarity in that sense, yeah. um, because again we do have some other journals much more focused on literature, and I wanted to uh, expand a little bit my uh, my horizons, yeah. Uh, yeah, my audience as well, mm-hmm. because I'm writing about psychoanalysis, I'm writing about politics, social change, so. Um, I, I did need an audience that, that would be interested in, in, in all those topics uh, combined and not on specifically literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also noticed that you publish quite a few numbers each year. So I assumed if mm-hmm. I sent the article, it could get published in a relatively decent uh, time. Frame. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's so important. That was too. important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So did you find you find the process pretty straightforward once you'd submitted? Yes, it was right. It was quite quick. And this is when you I say also, we're such a nice team. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, the, the, the edits uh, you, you made to my to my writing because, well, I, I didn't proofread it with an English speaker before submitting it. So the edits and how much it improved after uh, after it was revised by by your editors, it, it, it was amazing. Oh, well, that's very kind. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. One of the things I do with everybody that joins our podcast is I ask them for any of their don't try this at home tips. So that's things that help you uh, engage, get ready, prepare for the writing process. Maybe you meditate for half an hour, maybe uh, do a Wim Hof and do some cold water swimming or whatever it might be. What is it that you do whenever you're getting set up to write? No, certainly not meditation. Um, <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> the absolute opposite. Yeah. I do write with music okay. and, and like soothing classical music. music. Is that it? <laughs> No, not at all. I mean, it, it's not that I that I listen to John Coltrane while, while I'm writing. No, <laughs> I do go for the worst cheesy type of music, like pop songs, uh, like really, really silly stuff. Um, yeah. Because well, it gives it gives me the rhythm I need to to get going, to get my writing going. To, um, yeah, I'd say rhythm and and momentum, right? So yeah, pop like music, it. salsa, like the the worst kind of uh, the the worst kind of examples of the culture industry you can think of. <laughs> uh, those are the those are the songs I listen to uh, while I'm writing. That's what you have in your headphones. Well, you know, it works for you. Let's see. I don't know. I don't know. And do you have to have it up pretty loud to get going? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, and I don't use earphones i i i have my my speaker and yeah because also when i'm writing i i i also like to move around quite a lot okay so so maybe i write one sentence i get up i walk i get back to the computer so the music helps in that so your neighbors get to enjoy your taste in music as well (laughs) maybe i hope so (laughs) well that's brilliant well thanks very much for taking the time (laughs) 